right? I guess I'm on. Sounds like it. All right. <coughs> Pleasure to be with you, myself and my wife, together. It has been good. You live in an interesting state. Your number plates. All right? Victoria, the education state. Victoria, the place to be. But I got Margaret to take a photo of one of your number plates. You know what's on it? Southern Cross. It's on many of your number plates. Southern Cross carries a message. It's a Southern Cross. <coughs> it's in the heavens there. You get out, you look towards the southeast and the sky, and you'll see the five stars there. You who have to deal with young people <coughs> getting their thoughts fashioned in the schooling system face the fact that there was once a big bang. Billions of years ago, everything started from nothing. And the whole universe came into existence from a big bang. That's what they're taught. All right? <coughs> so, when you look into the heavens and you see the Southern Cross, 6,000 years ago, if you just happened to be, and you weren't, on the earth, you would have looked into the heavens and you would have seen the same thing, the Southern Cross, right? <coughs> because he is in strong in power, not one fails. Southern Cross was there when the universe was put into existence. Southern Cross is there today and we look out on it. So what are you seeing when you see the Southern Cross? Are you seeing the result of a chaotic explosion by chance that thrust all those stars out? Or are you seeing a designed universe? Because the Southern Cross has a name in astronomy, crux. You might notice in the Bible, Adam named all the animals and Adam named all the creatures that fly. But God named the stars twice in Psalm 145 and also in Isaiah 40. It tells us God named the stars. And coming down in astronomy, you have crux, and it means the cross. So there you have a, 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 a group of stars in the heavens. How many are in it? Look on your number plate. There are five. On your number plate, there are five. There's no name, Southern Cross. But it's acknowledged that there is such a thing in the heavens, five stars. So what have you got? One star, two stars, smaller star, another star down here. In that order, that's what it looks like. All right? What's its message? Who put it there? It's called the cross. That's what astronomy calls that group of stars, the cross. So what's its message? Head, hands, side, feet. God put it in the heavens when he put the stars into place. That's not an explosion. It is a designed universe. Amen, yeah. You sang the first word, first uh, verse of that. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works. That's one of the works. The universe is one of his works. <coughs> your hand have made. David said, when I consider your heavens the sun and the moon, which you have ordained. What is man that you even think on him? 
Now, I've just come from Swan Hill. I've been mostly with Fijians. There was one Tongan and there was one Australian in the student body, eh? So on Sunday, I covered, I think it was Sunday, I covered something about, uh, <coughs> by PowerPoint, I covered what they're taught in school and what the scientific facts are. So afterwards, <coughs> Nina, Nina is the uh, main driving body, she is the lady and her husband, they passed her the work. <coughs> her daughter, she went to her daughter and said, what did you think? Oh, mum. She's 16. The daughter is 16 in high school. Mum, I was ready to give up creation because of what I'm taught. I was ready to give it up. And the mother was shocked. She didn't know that was going on in her daughter. And that is going on in every young person in high school today and now lower down. True. So we are in a rather desperate generation. All right? A generation in, into which is sown the whole fact, taught us fact, that this whole world has been here for billions of years, life has been here for millions of years, and they interpret all the evidence, and that is what you're told systematically, day after day, in every high school. And when the humanists wrote their manifesto in 1930, this was written in by one man. We have them for five days. The church has them for one day. We are going to win. 1930. Tell me, are they on their way to winning? Yeah, unless the church raises its voice on these issues, they're on the way to winning. That's the position. I'm not going to cover that area tonight. Not my plan. I'm going to try and take you through some of the thoughts that lie in the book of Acts. Because I've just come fresh from teaching it and I had to, uh, before I went down, I've taught on Acts before, I had to spend time in the book of Acts to consider some of the truths that are there. So I'm going to take you on a pathway. I don't know how far we will get. We will see how we go. <coughs> All right? So you will need your Bibles and we're going to look. If you can't, uh, sorry, I can't put it up on the screen, but uh, we'll see how we go. All right? The first thing you will notice in your Bible, if you know your Bible, <clears throat> the book of Acts, what's the book that comes before Acts in your Bible? What's the book that comes before Acts? John. What's the book that comes before John? Luke. Alright, so we've got three books. One of the rules of coming to the Bible is you must put a text or a book in its context. So if we put the book of Acts in its context, you're going to be sat with Luke, John, Acts. It's in its context. All right. Very interesting. Who was Luke? Was he a Gentile or was he a Jew? He was a Gentile. All right. Luke was a Gentile. You know very little about, we know very little about him from the Bible. Very little. Until you get to the latter part of the book of Acts, you won't meet him. And the only way you'll know he's there is it changes in Paul's missionary journeys. Paul, he, uh, Paul, uh, uh, we, he, Luke is de describing Paul's missionary journey and just describing it as one looking at it and then you'll come to one place and he said, and we, Amen. and our, and us, meaning he is there. Then he disappears 
and you won't find him again till he comes on his final missionary journey. He's coming back to Ephesus. We, our, us. He's, he's there with Paul, right? And he, he's with Paul all on the boat trip. Boat trip, you know, there's the, the boat that Paul went on, you know, the storm it got into. It's we, our, us. He's on there with them. And then you go to Rome and for two years he was with Paul in prison. He wasn't in prison. He was with Paul in his own hired house. He's there. Tell me, in that time, two years, in the presence of Paul, do you think he picked up all the information when he wasn't with Paul? Yes, he did. All right? Because when you read the book of Luke, we'll go to the book of Luke first. Take your Bible, Luke 1, 1 to 4. How did Luke get his information? Because he wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1, verse 1 to 4. We'll read it through. Luke 1, verse 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, or you might have in your King James, surely believed, things we surely believed. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So where did, where did Luke get his information from? Eyewitnesses. All right. Name me some eyewitnesses he would have got his information from. Eyewitnesses. He said, I got my inf- we got our information. They were eyewit- Luke wasn't there. Luke was not a witness. You won't find his name mentioned. Right? You don't find it mentioned until you get into the book of Acts. But he got his information from eyewitnesses. Who were the eyewitnesses he would have spoken to to get his information? Apostles, disciples. All right. What about some real detailed information? What about the cross and what happened? Who was there? John, one of the disciples. The other one was Mary, Jesus' mother. Tell me, when you go through Mary's life, what do you get? She treasured these things in her heart. That's what you'll read in your Bible. The things that happen, it's commented on, it's written into your Bible. She treasured these things in her heart. So if Luke talks with Mary, he gets the treasures out of her heart. That's why we have such... Amazing accounts in our Bible. Do you think Mary remembered what happened to her when the angel came? She would never have forgotten, would she? So we have an amazing gospel here written by this man Luke and the source of his information he gives us. If you go to a law of court today, <clears throat> what are you dependent on to get your information accurately? You must have eyewitnesses. That is courtroom scene to, to show that something, we've got the facts. They're eyewitnesses. All right? So you come to Luke, are we getting the facts? He said, eyewitness account you're getting. This is from eyewitnesses. So he's telling us the source of how he wrote his words. Okay, keep it, go down to verse 3. <clears throat> Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, that's when 
Christ began his ministry and right from before that when he was conceived, all that. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What a precious book. Written, tell me, tonight, do you love God? Theophilus is Theos love, Theos God, Theos love, a lover of God. No person, we aim, he's writing to this, but does that encompass everyone who believes and loves God because of what Christ has done? Yes, it does. So if I am sitting here, I'm standing here, am I a lover of God? Is this book written to me? Is this book written to you? Yes, it is. If you're a lover of God, the book is written to us. You say, praise God, he's not left us in darkness. <clears throat> All right, so we go down there. It's Theophilus. And his purpose, it seemed good to him to put it in an orderly account. Very interesting. <clears throat> there is a man in the history of the church, in the recent history of the church, called Martin Lloyd-Jones. Many of you have spent time uh, and understand that he was a good Bible teacher. He's now with the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones was very friendly with an Assembly of God man uh, in another church. It, 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 they had good fellowship together. All right? So Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor. All right? He was a very good doctor. He was known as a very good doctor. He could diagnose the conditions of people medical doctor and he was very good at diagnosing conditions. That's what he was known as. But he began to find that the problems of most of his patients were not to do with physical disease. There were troubles in their life. And so he changed in ministry from being a doctor, well known, to becoming a pastor. And so he began to analyse the scriptures, the way he would diagnose a person's illness or condition. And that's why when you read his books, he is systematic, he is accurate, he just pulls it apart. What's he doing? He's already applying what he did in, as a doctor. He's just analysing, breaking it up so he can get, well, what's it about? So if ever you get hold of Martin Lloyd-Jones, books, he's written on Romans, he's written on lots of things, and he was a blessing in England many, many years ago. Many people from different countries would be in his meetings on a Friday night. So there's a doctor. Luke was a doctor. And you'll notice in your Bible that <coughs> Paul has a very intimate relationship with Luke. Take your Bible, turn to Colossians 4, verse 14. Colossians 4, and verse 14. I've got an NIV. <coughs> If you go to King James, the wording is beloved physician. <laughs> the beloved physician. King James uh, NIV has, <coughs> verse 14, our dear friend, that's our beloved, our dear friend Luke, the doctor. So you're getting a, a relationship established between Paul and Luke. 
tell me, did Paul appreciate Luke? Very much. He said, our beloved physician, this dear doctor. So there's a distinct relationship. Now take your Bible and turn across to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we get his deep appreciation for Luke. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and we're down in verse 11. This is the last letter Paul wrote. He is in prison. He is in Rome. But he's in our hired house here. He's allowed some freedom. <coughs> 2 Timothy 4 and we're down in verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Two years, Paul was allowed freedom in a hired house. He was housebound. But that whole two years, Luke was with him. Did Luke have opportunity to get from Paul what happened on the missionary trips when he was not there? Yes. Could he talk to Paul about, Paul, how did you come to know Christ? What happened? <coughs> Eyewitness, personal happening. You can't get anything more exact in detail. Can you? So we have a very interesting understanding that three books go together. Luke, John, Acts, in that order. All right. Now you turn to the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, and we go further. Acts chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 1, <coughs> down to verse 8, which is generally a well-known section <laughs> to Pentecostals. All right? Acts 1, verse 1 to 8. In my former book, Theophilus, which book is that? Luke. Writing to the same person? Are you a lover of God? This book written to you and me? Yes, it is. Same as Luke is written to us. By the way, Luke's a Gentile and I happen to be a Gentile. And I guess most of you here are probably Gentiles. All right? So is the book written to Gentiles? Can we accept this book? Yes, we can. All right? In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So, would Luke be able to get information? Where would he get his information from? Was Paul at the day of Pentecost? Paul wasn't there, so he didn't get it from, from Paul. <coughs> what about John? Was John at the day of Pentecost? All right. Did Luke know John? Who was at the cross that would have told Luke what happened on the day of Pentecost? Mary. Mary was at the cross. Mary was here. Mary, on the day of Pentecost, she was with them waiting on the Lord. So, by the way, so were his brothers. <coughs> All right? We go down. Verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this account or this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Uh-uh. Where did Jesus speak about the gift the father promised? Which book? John. You cannot deal with the acts of the apostles. You've got to build your understanding. It has to be built. And John spends chapter 14, 15, and 16 all on the promise of the Father, what it will mean, doesn't he? So we've moved from Luke, and we must ask the question, did Luke deal uniquely with the Holy Spirit as no other gospel writer did apart from John? All right? You get my thinking? My question. All right? Did Luke deal with this issue of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Father, which John lists in three full chapters, devoted just to that thing, before you step into Acts, because it is, as you enter into Acts, you are immediately faced with the promise of the Father. So is there anywhere in Luke that is unique? And there is. Luke is unique. He's separate to the other Gospels. Take your Bible, turn to Luke 11. <coughs> Luke 11. <coughs> and we're going to read from verse 5. Just to put it in its context, This is when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, the same way as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And we have what we call generally the Lord's Prayer given. But then he added a parable from verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My must have had security, eh? And my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, listen to Jesus, I tell you, <coughs> though he will not get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, Yet, because of the man's boldness or persistence or patience in asking, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So what's the message of the parable? If you want something from God, keep asking till you get it. If he's promised it to you, he'll keep his... You just sang, I'm standing on the promises of God my Saviour. What did Jesus say before he's leaving? He spent, I'm going to send the promise of my Father on you. Wait. He didn't give a time. They'd spent 40 days with Jesus. He just, a few days. He didn't give a timing. Just days, that's all. There's days. 
and you're going to have to wait. So here in this parable, all that we get from it is there is the necessity for persistence. If you're going to have what God has promised, you keep asking until it becomes yours and you know you've got it. It's a promise. <clears throat> so what is required for persistence? Hunger, thirst, that's what's required, isn't it? Thirsty, you've got no water, and you get thirsty, the longer you're without that water, the more thirsty you get. True? So what's God do with us? Exactly what he did with Israel. He'll bring you to circumstances in your life and you realize you can't handle it. I'm thirsty. I need water from you, God. You brought me to circumstances and I need what you have promised me. In that condition, you won't give up till the promise is fulfilled in your life. Simple as that. And God will never change his methods. We wonder sometimes why we are brought into situations and we are in, in, in places where unless God gives me something to meet this here now and you promised, well, I'll wait before you till you answer. Now there have been men in the history of the church down through the ages they have learned to wait on God. Wait till they breaks through and they receive what is promised. How thirsty are we? In the day in which we find ourselves today, is there a desperate need for power to witness? Desperate. You know, you know um, <coughs> things are not politically correct today, don't you? Certain things you're not supposed to talk about. Is there pressure on us today? Immense pressure. Right? I learned that just by testimonies from this two weeks. The pressure in Victoria is pretty great. <clears throat> so when we come to these kind of conditions, can God meet us in the time in which we find ourselves? Can he make us <clears throat> to be power witnesses to his son? Now I'm going to take you on a pathway which has changed my Pentecostal thinking. All right? Because every time I thought, you know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I thought, yeah, healings, right? Miracles. Is that what God is talking about? In part, but not fully. If you're going to be power giving power to witness, you are speaking. And you need power to speak his message. It's power to communicate the message that God gave the church to carry. We're not just pleading for miracles. We plead for them according to the early church. They plead when persecution has reached such a point that they've been threatened, they've been beaten, and they know they need to be bold. And they sought God. The God, and when you're reading it, it's amazing prayer in the book of Acts 4. Because they appeal to the God who created heaven, earth, and everything that is in it. They appeal to that God. That is the power of the creator. We, are, we 
appeal to you, you powerful God. You see the resistance. They resisted your, your son, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, all against him, persecuted and killed him. Now they're against us. That's the condition they're in. They've been beaten. They've been sent to their own. They report what's happened. So what do they do? They plead with heaven. They wanted power. You take your Bible and turn to it. Acts 4. It's very interesting, I found. Acts 4, verse 29. Acts 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. So, in response to the threats... In other words, you're not to speak in this name. You're not allowed to, to, to preach in this name. You're not allowed. That's the threat. And enable your servants, what? To speak with boldness or confidence. Interesting. That was their cry. Enable your servants to speak with confidence. Then they prayed. That was their prayer to start with. And then the consequence of that, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You can't separate the two. The power from heaven is to convey the message that we were committed to, to preach. That's it. God will confirm that word. He has promised to. He will confirm his word with signs following. If we were, this is written at the forefront of the battle, and as long as the church is involved in a battle with the world, in preaching the gospel, expect if you're faithful, God will confirm the word. Otherwise, this is not our pattern. We may as well put the book of Acts aside and say, doesn't apply to us, that's the years of the apostles, and we don't expect that to happen in our generation. Should we? Should we be able to apply what we see in the book of Acts to the conditions of our day? We should be able to. Why don't we see it as we should? Well, I'm going to say something. Because we don't preach the gospel like they did. If I read my Bible correctly, the reason why we don't see this is we are not preaching the gospel in the same way as they did. I think we have a lot to repent of personally. We have been committed to a gospel unchangeable. The content of that gospel is unchangeable throughout your New Testament. The details of that gospel are unchangeable. You can put them down in three distinct words, sentences. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. If you're going to have that as your gospel, you're going to tell about the death of Christ, what happened and what it means. You can't get past it. That's your message. You're talking about what God has done at the cross. Nothing about you, nothing about anything. You're preaching Christ. What happened to him? How long is it since gospel preaching carried the visual sense of you saw why Christ was on that cross? You understood my sin, he took it. It's visually before your understanding. That is powerful preaching. 
We, we hunger for it. I don't know what you're like. We hunger for that kind of ministry today because it is lacking, isn't it? So what's that? That's the first part. Christ died for our sin. And you ask Paul, how do you know Paul? Because you weren't there. What would Paul have said? According to the scriptures. I didn't have to be there. I didn't have to see it. I set it out by taking the scriptures and showing what happened at that cross. We uh, in the world today are biblically illiterate in the Christian church so much. Literate of the Old Testament. Because Paul used the Old Testament to preach the gospel. That's what he used. You say, I don't believe you. Take your Bible, turn to Romans 16. <clears throat> hey, uh, when do we finish the first session? All right. Romans 16. These are Paul's words. <laughs> If I get going, I get excited, all right? <laughs> because I've seen things that I've had to rethink a lot. Re, you know, rethink a lot. It's not that I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I do. It's a promise. It's something. But I think we have misinterpreted the, the, the drive of the purpose of God giving that Spirit. It's not just for signs, wonders, and miracles. It's power to present the gospel to a generation that is unbelieving. An idolatrous generation. <clears throat> All right, got Romans 16, this is Paul. Verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel. He started off Romans, he said it was God's gospel. Now he gets here, it's so much part of him, he said it's my gospel. I received it. And the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. It's a mystery that God would come down into this world and that he, he would be God manifest in the flesh and he would accomplish the will of the Father. Verse 26, But now revealed, that mystery that God would come down in this manner into this world, God sent forth his Son. Now revealed, please notice, and made known how. What does your Bible say? This mystery of Christ and the cross, how is it made known? Through the prophetic writings. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the New Testament. There was no New Testament when he wrote this. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Through the prophetic writings, by the command of the eternal God, that's a pretty strong statement. The eternal God has given a command that the prophetic scriptures be used to reveal Christ when we preach. <clears throat> so that all nations might believe and obey him. And he then says, to the only wise God, be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ, amen. So we are facing some very big issues. <clears throat> Go across back to Luke 11, where we were, and notice the wording. 
We've dealt with the persistent parable, the parable that teaches persistence. Jesus draws the conclusion he now gives from the parable he gave. He said in verse 9, So I say to you, now if I'm a disciple, is he speaking to me? Yes, he is. So I say to you, ask and what? It will be given to you. Why? Standing on the promises that cannot fail. Isn't it? Seek and what? You will find. What's it mean, seek? It means you're looking for something. You have fixed your determination to finally find that thing. Seek and you will find. Lastly, knock and the door will be opened to you. Now I want to, do you know this? If heaven, if heaven is opened, and it is often in scripture, either something goes in or something comes out every time. All right? Now tell me what happened to Jesus when he was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan and he's coming up out of the water. John the Baptist saw something. Don't know whether anyone else saw it, but John the Baptist did. Not recorded what anyone else saw, but John the Baptist saw it. What did he see? Heaven was in one, go- in one gospel, heaven was torn open. Right? <clears throat> Knock and the door will be opened. You read Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, John says, I saw a door open in heaven. I heard a voice say, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. So where's John going? Up into heaven. Jesus has been baptized in water. He comes up out of the water. Heaven's torn open. What happens? The spirit in the form of a dove. It wasn't a dove, but it's expressing the nature of the Holy Spirit. Spirit in the form of a dove came down and rested upon him. John said, I saw it. I saw it happen. So tell me, can God open heaven and send the Holy Spirit on you and me? Did he do it on the day of Pentecost? Yes, he did. Now, I'm not given to telling stories, but I'm going to tell you one. I'm mostly given to preaching what I see here, all right? In the likeness of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost, you will notice there are certain things that characterize the day of Pentecost that are not recorded in other times as you go through the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit came. There are things there not recorded. And you'll get this. They were in the upper room. There was a sound. There was not a rushing mighty wind. There was the sound of a rushing mighty wind. That's what your Bible says. There wasn't a rushing mighty wind going around. There was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. That's the first thing we know. Then it says, there appeared cloven tongues of fire and it separated and it sat on each of them. Now that's not recorded anywhere else in when the Holy Spirit came. The only thing that's recorded with the others is they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But here you have happenings that are not recorded anywhere else. All right? Now I want to tell you something. About the years 19, end of 1960, beginning of 1970, there was a yacht going up to 
Solomons. On it was a Maori evangelist. <clears throat> and they were going up to the Solomons, and he was to be the evangelist to the Solomons. When they got to the Solomons, they called in all the missionaries onto the yacht. And the purpose was to get them reconciled to each other because they had not been working together. So they called in all the missionaries. I'm telling you history, this is what happened. All right? I heard it from a congregational minister speaking to a Presbyterian evangelist. And I was eavesdropping at a prayer breakfast. All right? I, was, I was interested. <laughs> this is before I had anything to do with Solomon's or anything to do with the Pacific. All right? So I'm in this prayer breakfast, I'm listening. He is recording because he was in charge of the yacht. This congregational man was in charge of the yacht. So he said, this is what happened the first time. They called in all the missionaries and they prayed, they wept, they reconciled to each other. So there was unanimity. You know what I mean? Unity amongst them, all right? That's what it was. So they went from village to village and God's presence was becoming very real in, in the meetings. Finally, they're around in a village like this, and he's responsible for the yacht. So the Maori evangelist is preaching, but he's anchored the yacht outside the reef. There's, a, there's generally calmer water, there's a reef, and then out in the deeper water, you anchor the yacht. And so he's there, the meeting is just going to close, and he hears the wind. And he's responsible. If that yacht drags its anchor, it's, it's curtains. The, the yacht's finished on the reef. Jagged, all that. He turned and looked out to see there was not a leaf moving. But he, he heard the sound of a rushing wind, and he's responsible. So he turned and he looked, there was not a leaf moving. When he turned back into the look in the meeting, they are down on their faces. He said there was a man at the front with his hands raised, his face glowing, worshipping God. The whole meeting had changed in an instant. It's called the revival in Solomon. That was part of what took place. Can God do it in our generation? Will God answer the cry thirst? That is our position. Eh? I'm going to try and lay out to you because it's 7 o'clock now. We will finish. You'll have your break and we will come back. All right? I'm trying to lay out for you a systematic understanding of <coughs> what I find these three books.